following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. This sermon series uh, in the book of Ephesians, we've been calling it Identity Formation um, because really chapters one through three are declaring who you are if your faith is in Jesus. So we've, we've just finished chapter one and it says, you are saints, you are holy, you are faithful, you are blessed, you are chosen, you are adopted kids, with a massive inheritance, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are enlightened, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are empowered. All of these things are who you already are in Christ. And that's just chapter one of Ephesians. Like that is your, that is what is most true about you if your identity is in Christ. Now, one of the main things that when we come to the book of Ephesians, like this is not like a dream board for us. That, that, you know, I don't know if you do this stuff or you know anybody, but you've got this dream board of things that I'm aspiring for, like I want to fit in these new skinny jeans or I want to get this kind of house. Like this is not a, 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 a spiritual dream board for us to put up on the wall and say, hey, I'm going to try to, everything that I have to get to this. That, that's religion. Religion says jump on this treadmill, try to get it. Christianity is completely different. The journey of the Christian life is not be a better person. It's not try to achieve, try to attain. That's not at all what this is. The journey of the Christian life is to receive this. This is a gift. This is who you already are if your faith is in Christ. And the journey of the Christian life is to move deeper and deeper and deeper into the reality of who you already are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is why we're talking about identity formation. Here's Paul saying, this is who you are. Wrap your mind around this. Conform to this reality, not to achieve, but this is already it. 
And as we go through chapters one through three, it's a, he's asserting our identity, declaring these things that are true about us. Chapters four through six will kind of unpack what it looks like to actually live into this identity. What it looks like to, to, to live our lives as beloved, enlightened, forgiven, saints, blessed, chosen, adopted kids. But before we get to unpacking what this life looks like and the practicalities of it, Paul takes us back to our past life. So here's the cadence of Ephesians so far. Here's what you are. Here's where you're headed. It's a very bright future. But before we get into the practicalities, let me just remind you where God brought you from. Okay, he's like, let me take you back to your past life, life before Christ, B.C., okay? Now, this can be scary. Anytime you're bringing up the past, this can be scary. There's probably some guilt and shame wrapped up into that. You think back to all the stupid stuff you did as a teenager. Like, this is one of the reasons why I don't have time hop anymore. I had to delete that. You know that the app that sort of like resurfaces things that happened years ago? I couldn't stomach it anymore because I said so much stupid stuff like 10 years ago. I just thought, there's guilt, there's shame, there's regret, there's embarrassment, right? You bring up the past, and all of these things are likely to flood up to the surface. Now, as we move into this, as he's painting this picture of who you were before Christ, who you are before you were saved, Paul doesn't take us to the past to rub our nose in it. He's not doing this to embarrass you, to make you feel bad about yourself. He's not trying to humiliate you. Paul's primary aim in reminding you of your past life before Christ is to bring you to a deeper appreciation of the grace of God and what it has done for you. Just what we sang about today. This is what mercy has done for me. This is where God has brought me from. It's like in the words of Drizzy, I started from the bottom, now I'm here. Right? That's what Paul's doing. Hey, you were at the bottom, and now you're here. Now, as we move into this text, I got to warn you guys, you, you got to brace for impact. Because there's no sugarcoating what Paul's about to tell us. There, there's no, you know, there's, there, there's no um, editing going on here when Paul says, this is what you were before Christ. It's kind of blunt, in fact, so blunt that a lot of modern people cringe when we hear this. Now, we're in the age of filters, we're in the age of Photoshop, where we can take a raw image, we can take, take like, what, is, um, what is there and edit it and enhance it in a way where, okay, we get a, a finished product that seems a little bit more palatable, okay? There's none of that going on here. Paul is like, boom, it's a raw image. It is what it is. Here it is. And when you hear this, when you see what Paul is saying about you, there is this tendency that you're going to feel that you want to draw back. You want to recoil. It's like, whoa, 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 slow down, Paul. Now, if you're just joining us, I, I'm using this word Paul. Paul is the author. He's, he's the apostle who is writing this, who's one of Jesus' followers. Actually, the post, you know, the resurrected Jesus showed up, saved Paul, and then he, he sent him on a mission to establish and strengthen these churches. 
And so Paul here, he, he's got a connection with the Ephesian church. It's a church that he himself planted. He established it, uh, raised up elders. He left. And so he's got a heart for these people in Ephesus. And he's saying, listen, guys, I do not want you to forget where you came from. And when he's talking to them, what he says about them is also true of us. And not only will we have this tendency to recoil from what he's saying, we have an aversion to the truth that actually makes us want to suppress the truth. Like that's, that's part of our fallen nature. That's part of what it means for us to live under the curse or our hearts to be warped is one of the main things that we do is suppress the truth. It talks about this, Paul talks about this when he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter one, verse 18. The ungodly suppress the truth. We plug our ears we want to sweep this stuff under the rug. We want to get defensive about it. Like we, we, it's like we're on trial, and, and we've got to argue our case against Paul, or, or, or even we just cut and run. It's like, I don't need to hear this. I don't want to hear this. In fact, this is such a, a prevalent thing. Like this, this response that we have when we hear the truth of what Paul is going to say here, especially in verses 1 through 3, is that many churches know about this. And they pander to what people want to hear. So instead of talking about this, this ugly, nasty sin stuff, which we can't avoid if we're talking about being saved, we have to talk about what we're saved from. But there's this tendency where we're going to push back because it's hard to stomach all of this sin stuff that Paul talks about. We just don't like it. And so what happens are, as churches pander to this like repulsion that we have to the truth, they stick to some sort of like phony, Jesus-injected self-helpism. They just need a little help here. I mean, you don't, you're really not that bad. That, that's really what the message of people want to hear. You're really not that bad. If you just have some tips and tricks, if you've got these little pointers, you can, you can pull yourself together. You can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and, and you can get yourself, you can get your life to a fairly manageable position. But Paul looks us dead in the eye and says, that's false. You are way worse than you think. Now, that's scary. That, that's scary to hear, because, like, what are, you, what are you getting at, Paul? In fact, he says, you are so bad, the condition of your heart, the best way to describe it is to say it's dead, which is where he starts in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead is strong language. I mean, he could have said you are misguided, you are lost, you were sickly, maybe, maybe you were even on life support, like you were still just hanging on there, but Paul says that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. See, another way that Paul talks about this later on in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, about this condition that we have before Christ, he says this. Let me, let me jump there real fast. Chapter 4, verse 18, he says, they have become, he's talking about those who are before Christ, those who have not come to faith yet. They have become callous. 
and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of, oops, wrong one. They are darkened in their understanding. This is what I need to say. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Now, this stuff is getting up in your face. Because he's saying your, your, your hearts and your minds are darkened. You're walking around this world, but you're stumbling in the darkness. You can't see. You can't know. You're really lost. He says you're alienated from God, cut off from God, and the life that he has. You've been separated. And he goes, this is a product of ignorance. And guess what? It, it flows from a hard heart. No. He said, okay, he's essentially saying this, guys. You're dumb. You're ignorant. You're stumbling around in darkness, and you got a hard heart. Paul isn't being extra here. There, there's no exaggeration about what he's talking about, the condition of our soul. He's being real with us. Now, of course, this isn't flattering at all. Like, those are not traits that you, anybody would proudly put on themselves and say, look at me go. So there's going to be, naturally, a level of discomfort as we make our way through these first three verses. People will want to take offense of this, and, and perhaps you'll want to defend. You'll say, how dare you say that? I mean, look, look at all the good things that I do with my life. Now, if, if, you're, if your inclination in hearing this I'm, I'm gonna, there's gonna be a reluctant agreeance, I think. It's gonna be like, okay, I don't like to hear that, but I can kind of see what he's getting out here. Yeah, okay, yep, I, yep. I think that's probably a pretty good posture to have as we approach this text, but if you're defensive, if you're taking offense at this, this is probably a mechanism in your darkened heart that's working to suppress the truth. You just don't wanna come to grips with this. Now, Paul here, he wants us to see the severity of, our, of the situation of our souls. He wants us to see the severity. He wants to see what's at stake here. He wants to see how bad it is so that we could find the right kind of intervention. Okay, so a couple years ago, um, Trent was building this, this uh, drum studio here that we used to use. Uh, it's a little isolation chamber. He's outside. He was cutting. I was back in my office, and... Uh, he walks in, I'm like, hey, bud, how's it going? And he's holding his hand. And he's like, well, yeah, I, uh, it's going pretty good. Uh, I, th I think I cut myself, though. <laughs> and I was like, you cut yourself? Like, with a utility knife? Uh, no, like, with a saw. <laughs> okay. Well, let me see it. And he proceeds to open up his hand. At that point, I can see what I think is bone. I'm not sure. I'm no doctor, but it's deep. Now, listen, this is, like, Trent does construction. Like, his, his livelihood is based on his ability to use his hand. He, he serves the church by playing guitar. It's hard to play guitar with one hand. And so, like, I'm in this moment of, like, oh, my gosh, well, this could be really bad. Now, if I were to downplay the situation, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah you're, it's just a scratch. He's not going to get the kind of help that he needs. He won't, 
right? Oh, it's like, hey, just slap a Band-Aid on it and it'd be fine. No, 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 no. This is beyond Band-Aids, folks. We ha- to, to be able to get the right kind of intervention, you have to see how, how pressing the problem is. Now, this is what Paul is trying to, to, to show us. Listen, self-help and, and, and slightly modifying your morals and ethics are not enough to remedy the situation, the condition of your heart. It'd be like giving a corpse a workout regimen, right? Oh, yeah, if you just do these workouts, you'll be better. It's like, well, a corpse can't do anything. It's not helpful at all. And Paul says, listen, guys, you are essentially corpses, You're dead on the table. There's no comeback in sight. Nothing that you do will help you bounce back. Now, I know that there's some people in here, this is your first time at Sacred City, and you're like, this is a bummer. Like this church, everybody here, everybody's a bummer. Because here we are, we're just talking about the sin stuff. I know uh, I might be, I came to church to get encouraged, and I'm harsh on your vibe. Uh, I haven't given you the feel goods yet. But let me tell you this, before you turn me off, before you just like push away because it's so uncomfortable, you must, listen, in order to fully appreciate the good news, which is coming, there is a light at the end of the tunnel here. In order to fully appreciate the good news, you must first reckon with the bad news. Imagine you go to a doctor just an annual checkup, if anybody does those. I don't really do those. But if you go to the doctor for an annual checkup and you walk in the room, I mean, you're, you're fit as a whistle. Is that a saying? I don't know. It is now. You're as fit as a horse. Is that healthy as a horse? Just struggling here. You're a healthy human being. You walk in, you're expecting to get the gold, you know, the green check mark, you know, see in a year or whatever. The doctor walks in, hey, said, got good news for you. You don't have cancer. And what would your response be? You're feeling good, looking good. There's no reason to believe that you would have cancer, right? That, it's still pretty good news to not have cancer, right? But if you don't know what's at stake, it's not, you're not going to appreciate it. It's like, well, yeah, of course I don't have cancer. Now, just, just for a moment, imagine, like, if you've been going through a year of of checkups and tests and CAT scans and all of these things. Like, you know that there's something messed up. There's something wrong with your body. And you've been for a year trying to find the answers. And and it's at the point where they've crossed out everything else, it seems like, and all that's left on the table is this big C word of cancer. And then you sit down on the doctor's table and he comes up to you and says, hey, great news, you don't have cancer that's going to feel a lot different, right? That, that's, you're going to appreciate that news because you, you, it's been set in the bleak backdrop of darkness. See, Paul is trying, he's going to get to the good news, but before we get to the good news, before we can appreciate the good news, it has, we have to see the bleak backdrop of darkness so this light can pop off. That's why he's saying, you were dead in sin and trespasses. Now, when, when we come to this, clearly, Paul is not talking about physical death. He's not saying that you were actually buried in a grave, 
physically dead. He's talking about a spiritual death. Because we, as human beings, are more than flesh and blood. There is more to us than flesh and blood. And, and for us, so, like our world, we, we live in a physical world, and so, so much of the time our focus is just on the physical, right? So we'll invest all kinds of time going to the gym, eating healthy, doing stuff for our body, sleeping good, right? Focusing on the physical and neglecting the spiritual aspects of our humanity. Now, the scriptures tell us that we are embodied souls. So there's a value both on the physical world, so it's not just that we're spiritual creatures and we don't care at all about the body. That's not a case at all. Otherwise, there would not be a physical resurrection of Jesus. The biblical worldview values the physical, but also places a premium on the spiritual Right, you are an embodied soul, and there's a sense where your spirit, your soul, is more important than the body. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, do 10 Matthew chapter 10, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. Right? He, he places this premium. There's, there's, there's something we ought to be concerned about our souls. Now, as we think about our souls, we have to think about the condition of our souls, which is what Paul is saying in verse 3, 1 through 3 here. They're in rough shape. It's not looking good. In their natural condition, it's not a pretty picture. In fact, this is something that we have inherited. Like, it's not just that... I have devolved myself into this. I've been born into this sort of corrupted state. And and this goes back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. God told them not to eat from the the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Say, you can eat of any other tree in the garden. Don't eat this one, because if you do, surely you will die. By Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are at that tree, and they're eating, doing what God told them not to do. And in that moment, they eat. There is a death that happens. See, God says, surely you will die. Now, physically, they don't die. In fact, Scripture goes on and tells us they live a really, really long life. It's like 800, 900 years or something like that. They live a really long time. But in that moment, there's a spiritual death that takes place. This is why in... in, in, um, 1 Corinthians, I think it's 15, the Apostle Paul says, in Adam all men die. He's not talking about a physical death. Yes, there is part of the implications of this spiritual death is that there will be a physical death. But he's saying that there is the state of humanity right now is a spiritually dead state. And verse 3 points to this universal nature of all mankind. When, the, when Paul says, listen, He says, uh, you were living in the passions of flesh, carrying out the desires of the body uh, and the mind. You were by nature children of wrath. So by nature, this deadness is inherited. You've received this from Adam, who is your representative. And this means that no matter who you are, whether you've been raised in the church, whoever you are, wherever you're at, you at one point, if not even right now, if you have not yet come to Christ, means that you are physically born into spiritual death. You're physically born into spiritual death. Unlike physical death, which ceases all activity, right? Dead people don't do anything. Spiritual death is busy. 
There are all kinds of action verbs that Paul uses to explain what spiritually dead people do. He says you're walking, you're following, you're living, you're carrying out plans, right? Look at verses two through five. He says, um, actually start at the beginning. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Spiritually dead people are busy doing sinny stuff. And as Paul paints this picture of what spiritually dead people do, you cannot help but get zombie vibes, okay? For those people who think the Bible's boring, listen, Paul's talking about zombies. Scary. Scary. We're, we're the walking dead, right? There, there's this deadness about us, yet we're walking around like a bunch of zombies doing Things even kind of mindlessly according to the powers that be. Now, I, I need to break these down real quick so you can understand what it is spiritually dead people do. When Paul says we're walking in our trespasses and sin, now these two words, trespasses and sin, are very similar words. They can, they can almost be used interchangeably, but there is a unique overtone, unique imagery that each one of these words um, portrays in themselves. And together, they encapsulate the two types of sin, two general types of sin. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission means that I am doing something wrong. What I'm doing is wrong. Now, sins of omission means that I am not doing something that is right. Now, how this breaks down, so the word trespass, think of it, like I just came back from my parents' place out in, uh, on the other side of Iowa for, for a, a quick trip, and as we're driving through the country, gravel roads, there's all kinds of signs that say no trespassing, right? No trespassing, no trespassing, mostly because the hunters want to protect their hunting ground. So they say no trespassing, here's a line, don't cross it, and so to trespass, to be a, a to be in to be a trespasser, a transgressor, means that you cross a forbidden line. So a rule has been put out, you, you, you rebel against it, there's disobedience, and if you need an example of this, you can come visit my house and watch my kids because they're really good at this, right? Give them some of this, you know, I say, hey, do this, don't hit your brother, and guess what? Somebody just got hit. Trespassing. And then sin, it's actually an archery term. It means to miss the mark. So it could mean you don't shoot or you shoot and miss, right? There's this idea, this concept of, of what you ought to do that doesn't materialize. And, and this could also be, it could include doing the right thing out of the wrong motives. So Paul here, you were walking in Rebellion. You were walking in negligence. You were not doing what you ought to do, right? Dead in your sins. Now, at the core of these things, this is anti-God behavior. And this anti-God behavior is really impressed upon us by these anti-God forces. He's talking about you're following the course of the world, Right? The culture, you're just putting your head down, doing what everybody else in the world is doing, just sort of being a sheep. 
following the prince of the power of the air. Now, he's speaking here of the evil one, of the Satan, of Satan. This one who's rebelled against God and taken a third of, uh, of the angels with him and started this cosmic warfare, which we get wrapped up in ourselves. So he's saying, listen, you are under the influence. You're under the power of the world and of the devil. Now, this word following, that's the word that's translated in English, is too soft. Because my kids, we can be walking on a bike path and my kids can be following me. That, that is too chummy of a picture of what's going on here. When, when he's saying you are following, a more appropriate word would be you have been drugged by. You're being dragged by, you're, you're trapped by, you're enslaved to, you're entrapped in these powers. And we're going to dig into this next week because there's just so much here to get after. But what he's saying here, listen, the reason why you sin, the reason why you're dead in your trespasses and sin is because there are these powers, these forces that are being influenced over you. You're influenced by, you're bound by them that keep you in this spiritual deadness. You can't escape it. But here's the thing, we can't just place the blame on the external forces, right? Because in the very next breath, in the next verse, Paul says that we too are complicit in this rebellion. Verse three says this. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. So here he's saying, listen, you were following, it was your own fleshly desires. Now when Paul talks about flesh, he's not talking about like your actual skin. He's talking about the sinful bent in your heart, the things that are set on this world. And he's saying we're driven by these desires of the body and of the mind. Now, specifically what he's talking about here, he's talking about our tendency to find joy, satisfaction, and meaning apart from God, right? To, to push God away, to be autonomous people and say, I can do it, I can find my own satisfaction, I can find my own meaning. Now, when we talk about um, the passions of the flesh, some of the ones that, if you've been around the church for a while, they pop to your mind pretty quickly, right, are, are sexual, Right, the, the powers, the desires, the, desire, the, the thing that makes you want to open up the computer and look at porn. The, the desire that you have to covet, to, to lust after somebody who is not your spouse. So th those are the, the physical, those are the, the fleshly desires. Then there's the carnal desires, right? These appetites that we have to, and the tendency that we have to, to try to satisfy them by overeating, right? To become gluttonous, just keep filling our gullets full, to, to overdrink, to become drunkards. So Paul's saying, hey, here are, are these desires of the body kind of taking place, but it goes beyond that because it's also desires of the mind. These are the, our, our, our tendency toward anger and envy, rage, dissensions, and just overall selfishness. This is what a dead person does. And it's not just to do these things. But to actually even, to even think about them proves spiritual deadness. Now, in a nutshell here, as we back up, Paul says, you guys, listen, before you came to faith, you were zombies. You were physically alive, but spiritually dead. This is true of every single Christian, 
It was true because he says you were dead in your sin, right? There's a past tense here. But listen, guys, this is also true of people who have not yet met Christ. There is a spiritual, and he gets into this where he says we all once lived. Say we all. We all once lived according to the passions of our flesh. It was everybody doing evil in thought and deed, captive to the flesh, captive to the world, captive to the devil, even the good things that we think we do, right? The good things are motivated by selfish and evil intentions. This is the state that we find ourselves in, naturally, by default. And we cannot undead ourselves. Therefore, right, you can't do it. A dead man can't just say, I think I'm going to get out of the grave today. They're there. They're stuck. And if that's the case, this is what we would be like for eternity if we were just left to ourselves. Now, a misconception that circulates is that God sends people to hell. That's not the case. God doesn't send people to hell. We already exist in a hellish state. It's already, like, C.S. Lewis says, um, oh, dang it, I erased that quote. He says, like, in us, in us there is this, this thing that if, if given time and the opportunity, it'll, it'll turn and hell will be inside of us if it's not nipped in the bud. This natural disposition that we have, anti-God, anti-goodness, anti-beauty, anti-truth, right, suppressing the truth, this hellish state. Think about this. In all of the zombie movies you've ever seen, what, what is the mission of zombies? Eat people. Destroy humanity. Take over the world. Ruin what's good. That, that is what, when our sins are unrestrained, that is exactly what we do. We are broken, and behind us we leave a wake of brokenness. But with that resume, listen, if we have this resume, if we are actually physically alive, spiritually dead, zombies wandering the earth, tainted and corrupted by evil, with that kind of resume, what do we deserve? It's a scary question. Paul says in verse 3, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, listen, what you deserve for your zombie tendencies, your rebellion, your sin, your trespasses, following the principalities of darkness and, and the one who, who is over, the, you know, the, the prince of the power of the air, you deserve to meet God's wrath. Now, part of, like, so in, in one sense, that's hard to hear because the idea of a, a wrathful God doesn't necessarily sit well with us. And let me get to that in a second. But, but on the other side, we actually get this. Like, if you've ever played Call of Duty before, I'm just talking to the dudes right now, all of you high school guys, Call of Duty playing zombie mode. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody nod. Playing zombie mode. What do you do? You unleash hell on the zombies, right? You give them what they deserve. You knock them down. You take them out. You stop them from destroying everything that's good. Now, the misconception here with God, like, oh, a God of love, he can't, he can't have any wrath, that, that's a fallacy. Because anybody who loves something, there will be a wrathful side 
directed towards anything or anyone who threatens that which they love. So like you love your family, somebody comes, breaks into your house in the middle of the night, you're probably gonna go after them because you love your family. You're not just gonna sit back and let them take what they want, do what they want to you. You're gonna, get, you're gonna meet them with your wrath because of your love for them. God loves his glory. God loves his creation. And anything that threatens it, anything that pushes up against it, God is opposed to. Now, this is not, when we talk about the wrath of God, it's not an emotional rage. It's not God just throwing a big temper tantrum or unrestrained retribution. God always does what is good and right and perfect. He is holy. So even his wrath is perfectly measured. It's never out of proportion. It always meets the crime the way it deserves to be met. And as zombies, as spiritually dead people who are causing all kinds of ruckus, it would be fitting for the hammer of God to drop on us. Now, thankfully, verse 3 ends the description of our fallen state. Are you feeling this right now? Do you feel just sort of the darkness, the, the, the cloud that hangs over us, this, this feeling of being stuck in our deadness? Well, verse three ends that description of the fallen state, and then verse four begins explaining God's grace. Check this out. Well, I've got to read it from the top. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the, of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, say, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we get through the bad news, and finally, right, the bleak backdrop has been set, and finally, the spotlight comes out, and it shines on the grace of God. You were zombies headed for doom, but God intervened. This is, this is the best but in the Bible. This is, listen, guys, this is a complete a completely new direction has taken place. You were going down, 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 not bright future at all, and now God intervenes and is giving you a bright future. God sets his love and his mercy on us. Now think of this. Have you ever watched a zombie movie and been like, you know, I really love these zombies. My heart is just gravitating towards them in their wretchedness. Right, their flesh is hanging off their bodies and they're all doing their nasty stuff. Right? Nobody watches a zombie movie and, and sides with the zombies. Who could love a zombie? God loves zombies. God sets his mercy on zombies like us. We don't deserve this. 
We, we didn't put ourselves together and unzombify ourselves. God sets his grace on undeserving people without condition, without prerequisite. God dumps his love on us. In fact, this is crazy. Being rich in mercy. Listen, God has so much mercy, he makes Jeff Bezos look like a, a bum. He is, there's so much mercy in God for zombies like us. God doesn't, I mean, he had every right to bring down the hammer, but he doesn't. He's moved with compassion. He desires to save us, to deliver us, and to give us a new life. So taking us from dead creatures to recreating us, giving us a new life, making us alive, not because we're good people, not because we deserve it. He says, by grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been raised up with Christ. See, God does this because he is a good and gracious and loving God. And God does all the work that's necessary to bring us to life. Now, this is the crazy, but like, I love the song that we sang right before I got up here. It's like, that's what mercy did for me. Because if you are a Christian, if you've come to know the love and the grace of Jesus, you stop being concerned about creating and curating a biography for yourself. See, that, that's sort of like the natural, a zombie's, a zombie's M.O. I want to create a name for myself. I want to put a life together where people look at it and applaud me later on. See, a Christian does not concern themselves with a, a really flattering biography because a Christian has something even better. They have a testimony of what God has done that God has done something which we ourselves cannot do. He makes us alive with Christ. Now, how does he do this? This is really important here. How does God make us alive with Christ? He does it by sending Jesus to take my place. Jesus takes my place among the dead so I can have his place among the living. Jesus was killed both physically and spiritually. See, we see this on the cross because the agony that Jesus feels as he's, his arms are stretched out, as he's got the, the whips lashed across, the crown of thorns pressed on, the, the, the jabs, the punches, the abuse that he's taken to get to the cross pales in comparison to the agony and pain that he felt when he was spiritually separated from God. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus entered into the life of a zombie cut off from God. And in doing so, he took God's wrath for me so I will never, ever, ever again have to worry about the hammer coming down. If you are in Christ Jesus, he absorbed it all. He drank the cup of God's wrath for you. Now, he takes my place, but this is nuts, guys. This is stinking nuts. Because he doesn't just take my place, he gives me his. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about, if you go back to chapter one, he talks about Jesus uh, being the power. He's far above all rule and authority. Not just above a little bit, but, but far above. He's seated above the cosmos. 
of, of the earthly things, of the heavenly things, of the powers, the principalities, the, the rulers, the authorities. Jesus is seated above them all. And guess what? He seats us next to him in these heavenly places. Check out verse 6. And he raised us up with him. Notice it's past tense, right? He, he's raised us up with him and seated. He's not going to seat us. He has seated us already right now, if you're in Christ, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are adopted. We go, we go from being orphans of wrath to children, adopted children of God who co-reign with Christ. Now, this is to show us, guys, it's not just that, that Jesus is, it's not just that the grace of Jesus can get us like an inch out of hell. It's not just that the grace of Jesus can bring us to this neutral spot. It's that the grace of Jesus is so strong, so powerful, so mighty, that he takes us from the depths of despair and places up in us in the heights of heaven with him to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Now, if you're a Christian, guys, you're a miracle. If your faith is in Christ, you were once dead, and now you're alive. Uh, you're a miracle. Not in like a cheesy Hallmark way, like, but, but in a way where the kingdom of God, you can see it. You, when you see that happen, when you see somebody put their faith in Jesus, move from spiritual death to spiritual life, the kingdom of heaven is bursting forth in that one moment. In that person's heart, it's coming through. The grace of Jesus meets us at our worst. He brings the dead to life. He's making us a new creation. So you are no longer defined by your past. See, you were dead. You're not dead anymore. You have been made alive with Christ by the work of Christ. You were dead. Now you are alive. And the only way that you can access this, the only way you can get your fingers on it, you can't earn it, you can't work for it. It's a gift, you have to receive it. And the way that you receive this is by faith in Jesus. By seeing, like it's, it's a simultaneous reality of, man, I am worse than I thought. Like my heart is, is more corrupt than I ever dare imagine. But at the same time, the grace of God outweighs every bad thing I've ever thought or done. The grace of God is better and stronger. And when you see these two realities, we are entering into faith in Christ and trusting that he is the one who makes us alive. Verse eight goes on, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's a gift from God. And faith comes by hearing to hear the truth about our sinful state and to hear the truth of the mercy of Christ. Now, right now, right now, God could be producing faith in your heart to move you from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. And if you're a Christian, he's already done that in the past, but he's moving you deeper and deeper into the reality of who you already are in Christ by reminding you of where you came from. So that worship would abound in your heart. Listen, every Sunday we come together, we should be shaking the roofs of this place. 
because what God has done for us is so unbelievable that we cannot contain ourselves. And listen, it doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. Our worship spills out into the everyday stuff of life, that we live as worshipers. We're living not like these zombies, but people who have been made alive by Christ. Now, if you downplay your condition before Christ, like if you downplay the sinfulness of your heart, of your heart, the gospel's not gonna sound very impressive to you. But if you see the way that Paul sees, you cannot help but worship. But this is the other piece. So we live as worshipers, but listen. The reality is there are a lot of people in our city who are spiritually dead right now. And God, having made us alive, sends us into our city, into your neighborhood, into your families, um, into, into your workspace where you go to the gym and recreate, go to the parks, wherever you're going. Jesus sends you with this message that God loves zombies. That's my sermon title. God loves zombies. And if God has had the power to make you and I come alive, he has the power to do it again. And that's our prayer at Sacred City, is that the gospel doesn't stop with us. Like, like this isn't it. Like, the doors aren't closed to the church at this point. God has more people, has more adopted children who are coming in that belong to him. And the way that they enter the family is to hear this good news, to hear that God loves them even when they're at their worst. We're coming forward here in a moment to partake of the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of that. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He died so that we would have his life. So as you come this morning, just I would love for you to reflect, not in a not in a self-deprecating way, okay? We're not masochists, but in a way that is right and true to assess your heart and say, listen, there's so much sin. I've barely even scratched the surface, but Jesus sees it all and he gave himself. He gave me his all. So as we take and receive, we do with glad hearts. Now, if if you have not yet come to faith, if if you're not a Christian, first of all, we're just glad you're here. And I hope I, like part of me is like, Wanted to pull punches, but part of me, I can't do it. I can't pull because Because if you really are spiritually dead, your only hope is Christ to make you alive. And so this morning, I just pray that you would contemplate, meditate on, on what's been shared here this morning, that yes, we're worse than we thought, but more love than you could dare to dream. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We are undeserving. There's nothing that we could do to better ourselves, to position ourselves in a deserving spot. And so we thank you, God, that you have come to us, that you have made us alive by your grace. You are changing us day by day to make us more fully alive. God, we pray that you'd help us to realize both the sinful side of ourselves, but also to an even greater extent, the the redeemed, the loved, the, the, the side that's received mercy as adopted children of God. And help us to walk out of here, God, with this heart full of joy and thanksgiving and worship for what you have done for us, doing what we could not do, and also a burden for those who do not yet know you, 
that they too may come to life. We ask that you would do this. You would bring more and more people to yourselves. And the glory of the gospel may forever penetrate and be, um, be made visible here in this city, God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.